you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 18. We're looking specifically this morning at Jesus' letter to the church at, Laia, at Thyatira. I'm on the whole wrong letter, just to start off. How about that? The, the interesting thing about Jesus' letter to the church at Thyatira is that more space, more time, more writing is given to Jesus' address to the church at Thyatira than any other church in this subsection of Revelation. There are seven churches that are being addressed, and Thyatira gets more publicity, more writing than any of the others. What makes that interesting is the fact that Thyatira is the least significant of the seven cities that are mentioned here. In these other examples, you have these large, booming metropolitan areas. You have these large temples to the gods of the Roman pantheon. You have a measure of significance about each of those cities in a variety of different ways and for a variety of different reasons. But Thyatira is unlike that. In fact, it's even a poor population. Most of the people who live in the city of Thyatira are given to manual craftsmanship. They're involved in trade on that level in some way. And the city's just not outstanding in the same ways that the other seven cities are. And again, it gets more writing here in Revelation 2 and 3 than the others. There, there is a writing style in the New Testament. There are some certain literary devices that would suggest that Jesus' address to the church at Thyatira is the most significant of the seven letters. Not only does it get more writing, but it's right in the center. There are seven letters, and Thyatira is the fourth church being addressed. And kind of in our English writing style, we begin with the main point in the first sentence. We give the details in the middle of the paragraph, and then we give a summary statement at the end of the paragraph. That's good English writing style. I made a, I made a college living reading the first and last sentence of every paragraph in the book, sitting down and writing the book review, right? I'm not advocating for that approach if you are a student here this morning, but hey, it worked for me. In biblical writing, often it's actually the inverse. It is that there is introduction in the beginning and the main point in the middle, and then a moving away from that in symmetry with the introduction. It's sort of, it's sort of structured like an X, and that kind of style of writing is called a chiasm, named for the Greek letter chi, from which chiasm or chiastic structure comes. If that is the model that John is following after, or more notably, Jesus is following after here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, then we have good literary evidence that says that this letter is the most important of all. There may be reasons for that. The persecution being experienced by those in Thyatira did not rise to the same level of violence as we saw in the city of Pergamum, where Antipas died as a faithful witness to the truth of the gospel, but the mode of persecution was quite effective. And the mode of persecution experienced in the city of Thyatira should resonate with us because it's the kind of pressure we're most likely in our cultural context to feel. In other words, there is no government-sanctioned or government-authorized persecution of those who believe in Jesus. It's more of something that's happening by virtue of social or peer pressure. Because the population of the city of Thyatira were tradesmen or craftsmen, they needed to be involved in order to ply their trade in one of the city's guilds. The modern-day parallel to this would be something like the union. And by the way, I'm not pressing precise parallels between those institutions, so don't try to hem me up on unionization this morning, right? The trade guild was a gathering, it was a, a group, a collectively bargained in the language of our day, group of, of men or women who worked at a particular craft or at a particular trade. The problem that creates for the first century Christian, especially in the city of Thyatira, is that those trade guilds always associated themselves with local gods or goddesses. In fact, there might be a god to a particular type of of trade. There might be a God to a particular type of material used 
in that trade. Remember in Ephesus when Paul was run out of the city and they shouted over his preaching of the gospel, worshiping the goddess Diana, who would be worshipped with the use of silver. Silver smithing was the predominant trade in the city of Ephesus. And so the trade guild aligns itself against the preaching of that message in the city of Ephesus. Their economy was impacted by the preaching of the gospel that called them away from worshiping these silversmithed idols. So if you believe in Jesus in the city of Thyatira and in several of the cities mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, your job is compromised. There is real cultural pressure, not only that you be a part of one of these trade guilds, but that you participate in all of the social activities that come with being a part of those trade guilds. This is the kind of pressure that you and I are far more likely to succumb to than any kind of government-authorized or government-sanctioned persecution or pressure. That we would make certain compromises in our lives in order to accommodate the demands of society and bit by bit, incrementally, step by step, in that way it so often happens, be called away from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. What Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira is that her patience with sin has proven to be more than a mere compassionate patience, but, but really ultimately an expression of compromise, of conviction with regards to the message of the gospel. And Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira is that she would hold on to the message of the gospel. Let's look together at Revelation 2. Verse number 18, if you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says here, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. I will kill her children with a plague. And all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I don't put any other burden on you. But hold on to what you have until I come. The one who is victorious and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I've received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. Once again, the church has been called to compromise her convictions. To back away from the message of the gospel. Several years ago, I was in a little breakout session seminar with Roy Fish, the great evangelist and evangelism professor of so many years at Southwestern Seminary. And he appealed to a secular historian and expressing how it was that in the early history of the church, the church, this fledgling group of believers, small could ultimately overwhelm, overwhelm and virtually subsume the great Roman Empire with the message of the gospel in the span of less than 300 years. When you think about that, it's really a phenomenal thing that happens in those first 300 years of the church's experience. And in communicating this and in, in, in expressing the early history of the church in gospel advancement, Dr. Fish appealed to a secular historian, and this is what he said. The church advanced in such leaps and bounds in those early days 
because she refused to flinch with regards to the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except through Jesus. That was their conviction. That was the beating of their heart. That was the constant song that they sang. They believed in the very marrow of their bones that the only way to heaven, the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Son of the one true and living God. So the kingdom advanced, often at the cost of the letting of blood and the lives of many who faithfully witnessed to the truth of this message. Here again in Thyatira, the church has been called to compromise just these convictions. This time, the call to compromise comes from a false prophetess identified here as Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is not the literal name, in my estimation, of this problematic member of the church in Thyatira. But the way she is identified, identifying her with the figure Jezebel from the teaching of the Old Testament. You'll find young men who are named Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and James and other biblical names. You'll find ladies who are named Sarah and Rebecca and a variety of other biblical names. I've yet to meet a Jezebel. And for good reason, right? In 1 Kings chapter 16, Ahab becomes king of Israel. Israel is now the ten tribes of the north. They have a beginning that is rooted in idolatry and unrighteousness, and all of Israel's kings, Israel as the northern kingdom, are unrighteous, ungodly men, but Ahab outdoes them all. In fact, 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab did more evil than any of the other kings of Israel. And then the Bible says, as if the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were a trivial thing, as if idolatry were a trivial thing, he took to himself Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal of Sidon, as his wife and committed himself his life long to the practice of Baalism, even building an Asherah pole there in Israel for pagan worship and various other high places dotted the landscape during the reign of Ahab, the king of Israel. What's being described here in this problematic member's identification with Jezebel is the reality that in the same ways Jezebel corrupted by her presence the house of Ahab, so too this problematic member has corrupted the church of Jesus Christ. Go back with me to verse number 18. Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are as fine bronze. If you've been following along in our study, you've noticed by now that the way Jesus addresses himself to the church is, is directed at the message he'll convey to the church. Jesus is pointing to characteristic traits, attributes of his character that underlie, that provide a theological basis for understanding or appreciating his communication with the church. And in virtually every example, Jesus is appealing to the way he appears by vision to John in Revelation chapter 1 to make note of these various attributes. The lone exception comes in this introduction, where Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of God. Now, we're accustomed to the language of Jesus as Son of God. He refers to himself this way in the Gospel of John commonly. Virtually every book in the New Testament speaks to Jesus as the Son of God. But there seems to be something deliberate about the use of this phrasing here as Jesus introduces himself to the church. And it's bound up in that Thyatiran context of trade guilds and pagan worship and peer pressure that they too would worship the gods of the Roman pantheon and specifically the Caesar of the Roman Empire. It was customary that the Caesars would refer to themselves as Caesar is Lord. When you hear this constant refrain in the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's a broadside against the ideology of the day. And it was a common thing for Caesars to refer to themselves as the sons of whatever God they'd chosen to align their ancestral line with. In other words, a new Caesar would identify himself for himself a new name. 
And he would identify for himself a God that would be a part of the mythology of his leadership, a God from whom he would be said to have descended from. Caesar is Lord, and that Caesar is the Son of God was a part of the political propaganda of the first century, especially in cities structured like the city of Thyatira. So when Jesus says, not only am I Lord, within the fuller context of his letter to the church at Thyatira, but specifically, I am the Son of God, this represents a broadside against the ideology of that city. Jesus is saying here, I am the only begotten Son of the only one true and living God with eyes as fiery flame and feet like burnished bronze. Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira, you may have overlooked the sin of Jezebel and those who have followed after her, but the all-seeing and fiery eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ is keenly aware of her sin. You may have dealt passively and even tolerated her sin and may have felt justified in doing so, but Jesus with his fiery eyes has witnessed with absolute precision your passivity and toleration of such unrighteousness. Jesus moves among the lampstands with feet as fine or burnished bronze. You may have failed to address the sin of Jezebel, but Jesus moves in judgment in the midst of the lampstands with weight and in absolute righteousness. Jesus describes himself here. He's providing something of a theological framework with which we are to work as we understand what he calls the church to do in the verses that follow after. In verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first. In some ways, the church at Thyatira is the anti-church at Ephesus. Remember the church at Ephesus was such a rich tradition? They had this legacy of leadership there. They had Paul and Timothy and John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, in all likelihood, attended that church at some point in time. There was power expressed in the life and experience of that church. Jesus says, there's an issue. You've lost your first love. And in the doing of good deeds and your religious activities, somewhere along the line, you have lost your fervor for Jesus. You're doing good stuff. But Jesus says, I'm no longer the treasure of your heart. And he calls them to repent. But Thyatira's experience is just the opposite. There's some good things happening. They're about the work. They're, they're loving. They're faithful. They're serving. They're enduring. And all the while, their heart is growing warmer toward the things of Jesus Christ. This is the way, brothers and sisters, it ought to be. They are the anti-church at Ephesus and that their later works exceed the first. Now, the way Jesus describes the faithfulness of the church is the direct opposite of the way Jezebel is described in the verses that follow after. For instance, Jesus says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. The church loves, whereas Jezebel commits adultery. The church is faithful, whereas Jezebel is unrepentant. The church serves, but Jezebel is given to pagan ritualism. The church endures, but Jezebel compromises. Jesus is saying here, there are some truly great things happening in your midst. Church at Thyatira, persevere, endure in these works. Now, I'm not sure that this is the point that Jesus is making here, but there's a principle here that I think is worthy of our observation. Jesus is about to transition in verse number 20 to the charge, the allegation against the church. And it's a, it's right. Because Jesus has fiery eyes that don't miss any detail. But here, he takes note of the good things. It is entirely possible to observe and to acknowledge that virtue exists even when there is the presence of evil. And on the opposite, it is entirely possible to acknowledge that evil exists even when there's a great deal of virtue present. I point this out because we seem to be, in our 
culture, I'm not speaking of the church specifically, but in our culture in general, losing the ability to discern the good from the bad, usually in an effort to advance a certain political agenda. Christians ought to be careful that we don't call what is good evil and what is evil good just because it serves our political agenda. It's often the case in this topsy-turvy world that good and evil are existing alongside one another. We need to possess the discernment to acknowledge what is good while acknowledging what is bad or on the opposite, acknowledging what is bad while observing that there may be some merit, some value existing alongside. Jesus does that with absolute precision. In verse 20, he turns to the charge against the church. He says, but I have this against you. Can you imagine you're sitting in that congregation for the first time the book of Revelation is being read? And you've, you've read three letters already. And the, you've mastered the pattern. Jesus says, here are some good things. And then he says, but I have this against you. Can you imagine if we were reading a letter in church this morning that followed after this pattern and we got to the church in Hernando? And Jesus said, oh, there are these good things and these good things and these good things, but I have this against you. Can you imagine how we might wince, how our face might change, how we might recall at Jesus's accusation against us? Listen to what he says. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now the name may be symbolic, but what seems clear to me is that Jezebel represent, represents an individual member of the church at Thyatira. She's taken for herself the title of prophetess. There's something to be said for, for precision with regards to the way we refer to various biblical offices. I'll never forget, I was in my first year of ministry, I, I served as a student pastor for one year. Sometimes I tell people I served a five-year sentence as a youth minister one year, at the very beginning of ministry. And the lady that happened to be the janitor in the church where I was serving, she comes into my office and she's standing there in the door. There's no other way to escape. She announced to me that she was a prophetess and her husband was an elder and her 13-year-old son was an apostle. Now, I'd love to tell you that I responded to that in all of the biblically healthy ways that you should respond to that. But the reality is I was just looking for an exit and I took it as soon as I got it. But it's always stood out in my mind the way various offices as described in the Bible can be taken without clarification or qualification and used to enhance the authority or the influence of an individual member of the body. Now, there's a measure of flexibility. Even within Baptist life, we tend to refer to the office of pastor as pastor, whereas the more biblically precise way of referring to the office might be bishop or as elder. Our preference is for the language of pastor, which describes more what the bishop or the elder does than the office or the person himself. But I'm not talking about that kind of flexibility. I'm talking about using language like apostle or prophet or prophetess in this particular case to enhance or lend credibility that in reality should not exist. For the sake of clarity and shortness of time that we have here this morning, it is sufficient to note that the office of apostle is limited to those who walked with Jesus and observed his physically resurrected body. So far as I know, there is no one alive that meets those criteria today. And the office of prophet has been brought to a close. It has been brought to an end now for nearly 2,000 years. Prophecy in its current iteration is more about the foretelling of the truth of the gospel than the foretelling of future events. In fact, I think that's where the emphasis of the office has always truly been. Here Jezebel has taken the identity, taken the title of prophet, prophetess in order to enhance her influence and credibility within the body. Only it's not to righteousness she's calling other members of the church, 
It is to teach and deceive the servants of God to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, the idea that Jezebel is enticing the church to sexual immorality could be a way of making reference to spiritual adultery, coming away from the worship of God, coming away from the worship of Jesus and practicing idolatry or paganism in some way. That's often the language the Old Testament uses to describe the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. But here, there seems to be something decidedly sexual about the enticements of Jezebel. This becomes clear as we read further in our passage. She's drawing them away from the church. And her primary means of enticement is sexual immorality. And I got to say to you this morning that often Satan's primary means of drawing you and I away from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints are the sins of sexual immorality. When a college student comes home and sits down and says, Pastor, I'm thinking about, defect, about defecting. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about whether or not this Christianity business is true. The first question I want to ask with him or address with him is not the evolutionary science class he's taken in, in the university or some way he's been influenced by progressive ideology. My first question I always want to ask is, who are you sleeping with? Because what ordinarily is being looked for is some way to accommodate one's inclination toward what the Bible has clearly defined as immoral. Far more often than not, our value system, our, even our theology, what we believe is following after our ethics. And unfortunately, our ethics are being driven not so much by what we believe, but by the lust of the flesh and what we desire to do. It is not coincidental that sexual immorality and paganism, idolatry is always linked together. We tend to think of the Western world as exclusive of the problem of idolatry. We think of the Far East, Buddhism, and the worship of shrines and various idols. That's where idolatry takes place. The reality is that we have far more sophisticated idols in the Western world. We have chosen rather to idolize ourselves, and it should come as no surprise to us that running right alongside our self-worship, our westernized forms of paganism and idolatry is a rapid increase in a variety of expressions of sexual perversion and outright immorality. Jesus would say in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, what I believe is clearly being described here by Jesus is a scenario in which Jezebel has been called to church discipline, and the church has failed to see that through. To say church discipline in our context may sound antiquated and outdated, something that used to be done in the old days when Baptists danced and got thrown out of church for dancing on a Saturday night. I, I, I have, kind of as an armchair church historian, enjoyed reading church minutes and old stories of silly things like that happening, but that's not at all what is in view in the teaching of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 18, the Bible prescribes for us a method for dealing with unrepentant sin within the context of the church. Jesus says, if you see a brother or a sister in sin, out of concern and compassion for them, out of fear that they've endangered their soul, you ought to go to them with Christ-like love, seeking to see them restored in repentance. Now, selfishly, I want to point out what Jesus does not say there. Jesus does not say, if you see your brother or sister in sin, you should go get your pastor and have him go to them and talk to them about their sin in the hopes that they will repent. No, Jesus says, you, you are the church. You should go to them. Now, I want to go beyond that to point out that this is not about playing the tattletale game or trying to find things wrong in the lives or experiences of others. In fact, the New Testament is fairly clear. There are only three major sins, three major issues that call for or demand the practice of church discipline in these ways in the New Testament. One is doctrinal. When a person deviates from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that must be addressed. Two is divisiveness. 
when a person is actively working to bring discord and disunity into the life of the church, steps must be taken to remove that member from the body. Now, I got to tell you, there's a lot of Baptist churches, if they would just answer the call of Jesus in this particular area and reject a divisive man after the second and third admonition, which is the command of the scripture, they could save themselves a whole lot of heartache. And then the third is open immorality, public immorality, usually sexual immorality. Now, Jesus says here, I gave her time to repent. If you go to a brother or a sister and they're unrepentant, the next step as prescribed in Matthew chapter 18 is to take another brother or sister. If you are a brother, I would encourage you to take another brother or two. If you are a sister, I would encourage that you take another sister or two. And approach them again lovingly in the hopes that this encounter would produce repentance in their heart, that the Spirit of God would convict them of sin, and that they would be restored. But in those instances when repentance is not found, there ultimately comes a point in time when that individual member of the body is brought before the body to be removed from the fellowship of the church. I'll tell you why that happens. This is not a, we're just going to kick you out because we don't like the things that you're doing. We want, listen, I want personally that the membership role of our church be an accurate reflection of the Lamb's book of life in heaven. If a person's name is not in the Lamb's book of life, it oughtn't be on the role of the local church that belongs to the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so what the church is acknowledging when there is persistent unrepentance is that this is completely out of step with the teaching of the gospel. A truly regenerate person would not persist in unrepentance. And so we want to align our hearts, our records, and our mind with that of God who is in heaven. And we want to be abundantly clear that we express to the unrepentant person that their life is completely out of step with the message of the gospel, that they themselves need to come to faith in Jesus. You know, I, I came to pastor here from a far more rural context than what Hernando, Mississippi is. And some of you are thinking, we're in the country now, but you ain't seen nothing. And one of the things that I have found especially frustrating is that no matter what sin I may sit with you and counsel and warn against, it doesn't matter. It can take any shape, form, or size. And it can be abundantly clear in the Bible. I can cite you book, chapter, and verse. There, there, there really is no question here. Within a 30-minute drive, you can find a church, at least a gathering, meeting under the banner of the gospel as a church, who will not only encourage your continuation, but affirm your lifestyle decisions. What I would warn you this morning is that you may slip the perception of a local church body with regards to your sin, but you will not escape the all-seeing fiery eyes of the Son of God who walks in the midst of the lampstands. Now Jesus is saying that perhaps this process has been begun. She has had sufficient time to repent. She does not want to repent of her, sexual, of her sexual immorality. And now the time has come that she be addressed and removed from the local church body. Verse 22 says, look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. I will kill her children with the plague. Now, there are symbolic elements within what, is, what Jesus has described here, and there are literal elements. One of the reasons that I think that sexual immorality is a key component part of the influence of Jezebel is because of the way judgment is prescribed. It is as though Jesus has said, you wanted the bed. You sought to entice members of the body and others into the bed of immorality. I'll give you what you ask for. I'll cast you into the sickbed. I'll give you a judgment that is compatible with the immorality you've given yourself to. This does appear in verse 23, I will kill her children with the plague to be symbolic. Not her literal biological children, but those who give themselves over to her influence. 
I've thought about these verses a few times this morning, and I wish I'd written them down over the past week, but in the reading of Proverbs, there are a number of passages along the way that make it clear that you and I are responsible for what we listen to. Sometimes we see a person get persuaded in a, in a bad direction. We go, well, bless their heart. They had, you know, this happened and they were persuaded and we want to lay the blame exclusively with the party who's influenced them negatively. And there is blame, there is culpability to be had there. But the reality is you and I are responsible for what we allow to influence our heart, for the influences that we hear and we listen to. I will kill her children with the plague is just a very harsh way of saying you give yourself to her influence if you want, but you'll find yourself likewise thrown into the sickbed with Jezebel and her sexual immorality. Jesus works in this way, it seems, in verse 23, in order that all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Though the church may have responsibility in examining or assessing the members of her local body, the final judgment ultimately belongs to Jesus. It is not our responsibility nor within our purview that we would concoct in our mind a certain measure of sin that's now been deemed to be acceptable or to modify the moral imperatives of the Bible in order to suit our cultural context. Jesus wishes to work in such a way that all the churches would understand that it is he and he alone who examines minds and hearts and will give to each of us according to our works. Jesus would say, as he describes it, to the rest of the church in Thyatira in verse 24, those who don't hold the teaching of Jezebel, who haven't known the deep things of Satan as they say, I don't put any other burden on you. There are some who see this deep things of Satan phrasing and find an element of mystery there that I don't believe to be there. What's interesting is that most heresy, most heresy, this is a frightening thing, most heresy takes the form or is couched in the language of understanding the deeper things of God. There is no church of Satan in the city of Thyatira in the first century. This is Jesus being sarcastic. Jezebel speaks to you of giving insight or examining the deeper things of God, but in reality, what she's about are the deeper things of Satan, as they say. If, if, you, if you are vexed about the so-called churches of Satan, you may be misdirecting or, or, or directing wrongly your frustration with the work of Satan in our world. I would far more rather Satan overtly identify himself. I'm far more frustrated with the so-called churches that are doing the works of Satan than with the so-called churches of Satan who are at least honest about their lostness and immorality. Jesus says, for those of you who have not given yourself to the influence of Jezebel, the deep things of Satan, I don't put any further burden on you, but hold on to what you have until I come. The single commandment, the lone imperative of this letter is that you would hold on to what you have until Jesus comes again. Brothers and sisters, what we have is Jesus Christ in the gospel. Hold on to Jesus. Jesus says, hold on to me until I come. Don't deviate. Don't withdraw. Don't flinch but hold fast, steady, and faithful to Christ in the message of the gospel. Hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to Jesus. There is no other burden. He goes on in verse 26 to begin to describe the positives, the benefits that come from holding on and holding fast. One who is victorious and keeps my works to the end. I will give him authority over the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I've received this from my Father. And I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Jesus is reminding here the church at Thyatira that there are some blessings, there are some benefits that come with holding fast to the end. Most notably here is victory. Jesus does what is so often done in the book of Revelation, cites an Old Testament passage in order to emphasize the kind of victory, what the future holds for them as a congregation. Imagine yourself for a moment in the city of Thyatira in the first century. Your ability to work has been compromised by your faith in Jesus, being mistreated by your peers, you're an outcast in society. And, and it's, this is not America in the first century, right? Where you have certain constitutional rights and privileges and you go, I'll tell you what, you fire me if you want to for my faith in Jesus, but I'll hire an attorney and I will sue you and I will live the rest of my life off the back of the big fat check that you'll eventually write me in civil court. These are not the days of the insurance industries and various legal protections. None of those things exist. On the other side of the battle lines that have been drawn between the culture and the congregation is the Roman Empire. The greatest empire in the history of the world. What is before you is an insurmountable obstacle. You cannot win and you have no recourse. You have no civil or social protections. Can you sense the despair, helplessness that those in Thyatira might have endured? And Jesus says to them again in Revelation 2, he will shepherd them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. A reference to Psalm 2 and verse 9. But, but I think it's often the case that when these quotations are given, especially from psalms that would have been memorized by members of the body, the entire context of that psalm is imported into the passage. Listen to the way Psalm 2 begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. The nations rage, they shake their fist in the face of God. They believe themselves, they believe themselves to be a competent opponent to the God of heaven. But verse 4 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them and he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs in the face of those who believe themselves to be worthy opponents. He's saying here to the church at Thyatira, you may be without recourse today, but you are subjects of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. The Roman Empire may seem vast and formidable. It may appear to you to be this insurmountable obstacle, but there is a God in heaven who has the Roman Empire and every other earthly king well beneath his feet and well under his sovereign authority. He's inviting them in the face of great opposition to persevere, looking beyond this life to a world that is yet to come by the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I've received this from my father, Jesus promises to give authority over the nations, even to the church. Jesus promises to share all authority given unto him in heaven and on earth with those who hold fast to what they have until the end. I don't know how this works. I don't completely get it. I understand the flow. I understand the message. I don't necessarily understand how those in Christ will share with his absolute authority and rule. But I trust we will. I've been surprised to learn the number of people, what a, a widespread view it is of Revelation that says that this book is about cosmic battle between good and evil. I was told a, told a few friends in the New Testament community that I was preparing to preach through the book of Revelation. They would ask me that question in the beginning, and I thought, and is that a really a valid, people, is that a valid view? Is that common? And the more I read and, and, and share in conversation with others, the more I find that there, there's a, a, quite a, a notable number of people who see the book of Revelation that way. I'm confounded by that because I don't think it could be further from what the message of the book itself is. 
There is no cosmic battle between good and evil in which sometimes Satan wins and bad things happen and sometimes God wins and good things happen. The victory has been won. And in the gospel, Jesus has invited us into himself, enjoying that victory. And in some mysterious way, the authority that comes as a consequence over, over death and hell and the grave. The invitation of our passage is to hold on to Jesus. There is no other burden. Victory for us is to keep his word until the end. And the promise of the Savior is that the victor will reign with Jesus forever. One last promise in verse 28. He says, I will also give him the morning star. There's quite a few occasions in the book of Revelation where Jesus is drawing from two sources of influence to make a point. And sometimes to look to either source of influence is, is adequate to understand the message. And sometimes there's, there's, there's sort of a, a defensiveness about what Jesus says, if I could say that politely. For instance, the crown of righteousness that Jesus promises to give in a previous letter. It's, it's, a, it's a veiled shot at, at the crown, that leafy crown of foliage that the victor in the games would wear. And Jesus is just saying, I'm not going to give you this junky crown that's going to die in a week's time. I'm going to give you the everlasting crown of righteousness. The morning star is similar to that. There are passages in the Old Testament and in the New that make reference to Jesus as the bright and morning star. Even at the end of the book of Revelation, there is a reference to Jesus as the bright and morning star. It is appropriate that we would regard Jesus as the bright and morning star, given that the book of Revelation itself seems to draw this connection. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, the Bible says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. On the other hand, from the cultural context of the city of Thyatira, the bright morning star, Venus, had, had a, a, an important role in Roman culture and in Roman history. There's a mythological connection between Venus, the star Venus, which third to sun and moon is brightest in the sky from our perspective, and Aphrodite, that Greek goddess, and the origin of the city of Rome. The Roman people are born by lineage from Aphrodite, Venus, and down the line. Now, that's a mythological connection that exists, but it's a mythological connection that existed in the minds of everyone in the city of Thyatira and virtually everyone in the Roman Empire. Venus was connected with victory in battle because Venus, the bright morning star, shines the brightest just before the break of day, just before the dawn of battle in the mind of most in the Roman Empire. The star Venus would be featured on the Roman garrison's clothes or on the Roman general's shield. It was a common symbol. It was, it was regularly used imagery in the Roman Empire to make reference to the victory that they would no doubt secure on the field of battle in the days that were Ahead. So the question before us is this, is Jesus saying when he says, I will also give him the morning star, that if you will hold on to what you have until the end, I will give you victory, as is the case in the Roman symbolism, or is Jesus saying, I will give those who hold on to what they have until the end myself, as in the biblical imagery? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Jesus will give the victor, those who hold on to what they have until the end, himself. And in Jesus, there is victory. We have won in Christ. We are experiencing more and more because of our, our exposure to everything that's happening in the world in social media and a 24-hour news cycle, just how patently unfair this life and this world can be. I found myself over the past couple of weeks in an inordinate number of funeral services expected as the pastor to be able to account for why such dreadful things can so often happen in our world. More often than not, without suitable answers to those questions, there are just times when it seems as though injustice and unrighteousness prevail in this life. But there is coming a day when the eastern sky is parted 
and we observe together the Son of Man coming on the clouds of great glory. And what has been for so long so wrong will finally at long last be made so right by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is not just Jesus carrying away our sin and our identification with him in death. But the message of resurrection and our identification with Jesus in life. The assurance, the guarantee that you and I will be physically raised. That no more can this world bear threat against us. Whatever might be robbed of us in this life will be restored and all the more for the one who holds fast to what he has in Christ until Jesus comes again. The key here, and I think the invitation of the whole book of Revelation, is that we master the ability to look with eyes of faith beyond what we see so plainly with our physical eyes, to look beyond this existence for our reward to a world that awaits us under the sovereign kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection is our hope. And resurrection is found in Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our God, and our King. The bright and morning star who always comes before the victory. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for this morning. God, I, I pray that you would capture the attention of each person here. That for the next moments, our exclusive thought would be focused on you. Your son, Jesus, his magnificence, the power of his name, and the graciousness of his gift of salvation. And I pray, God, that you would grant each person here the capacity by your spirit to examine themselves to see that they're in the faith. I pray for the church, for those that find themselves to be in Christ, that you would help us to see the points of weakness in our armor, that we might gird ourselves with righteousness and be protected from the Jezebels that invariably exist in every church setting and in every generation. Pray that you would protect us against temptation and enticement, that you would so fill us with the joy of salvation, Lord, we would find ourselves so fulfilled. What this world offers would serve as no enticement at all. I pray for, for those who find that something is truly amiss in their heart and life. God, that, that what they're looking for, they'd find in Jesus. I pray that you'd give clarity beyond my ability of explanation to all who are here to know and understand the message of the gospel. I pray that you would help us to see ourselves for who we are, not just as we see ourselves in our judgment, or against the measure of our peers or those around us. God, help us to see ourselves as you, a holy, holy, holy God, see us. God, I pray that you give us boldness and courage and conviction that we would follow after the leadership of your Holy Spirit. God, save us, sanctify us, call us to repentance, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enable in us, God, the work to which you've called us. And may Jesus receive the praise. It's in Christ's name we pray.